0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Katherine Troyer, and I am, as always, joined by Anthony Tresca. Hey
1: there! This
0: is a podcast devoted to thoughtful discussions about that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares.
1: And we are so excited and very, very thankful to have you join us for our episode over the 1984 classic a Nightmare on Elm Street.
0: Yay! This is going to be a terribly exciting and fun episode, uh, in part because of just how much you and I really appreciate and love uh, the, the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, this is, this is my favorite horror movie, and it's also the first horror movie that I really remember seeing. Uh, so, I mean, like, I remember I saw it at a late night screening at, like, one of the anniversary screenings of it, and I had, I didn't really think, I mean, first of all, when my parents took me... Uh, they did not tell me it was a horror movie, so I didn't really know what I was getting into. I didn't really know uh-huh. what the movie was, but I was just like, it's the anniversary screening. I'm sure if it's getting an anniversary screening, it must people must like it. It must be yeah. somewhat good. Um, and I just remember seeing it with that rowdy crowd, and it was just amazing. Uh, Do you remember how old you were? Oh, um, I don't remember how old I was. I was like, I would, must have been like around somewhere between, like, 10 and 12 when I saw it. Uh, that's interesting that, not that,
0: like, that's not about the right age to see the film, but, like, it's interesting that your parents, like, chose that as your first horror film, like, chose to take you to it, chose to take you to the, like, chaos that is a showing of a beloved film. Like, I, it's just so interesting that I love it so much.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know what was going through my parents' head to, to like, justify that... To justify taking me to see a Nightmare on Elm Street, but I am glad they did because again, like I said, it was I not, and then so I saw I said I, I I saw that then I loved it, but then I really didn't see much horror or like do anything with that love. I was just like, well, I like that one. That one's good, until uh, like twenty seventeen when the It movie came out, and I was like, oh, I guess I will I will watch more of this show. We'll watch slash read slash partake in this genre more. But, yeah, I, I love this movie, and I've always loved the whole Nightmare on Elm Street genre, because that was the exception, too. I, did, I didn't watch very much horror uh, for most of my childhood, except for the Nightmare on Elm Street series. I, I watched all of them.
0: And it makes sense, right, for for you because one, it's it's all about the camp, right, and and you were all about ca- the camp, um, and two, there's you know that I, I bet you that first viewing, right, had left this indelible print because you are about the theatrical experiences, right, and and those um, anniversary screenings of things where everyone knows all the lines and this you know saying them together. I mean, it is as much of a um, theater experience as you can get. That's
1: not Live actors, right? yeah. I and I remember. I even I I my f- I know that my my dad in particular loves this movie, and so there we. I was when I was a child, I would go to like comic book conventions and whatnot, and I actually went and sat in on a Nightmare on Elm Street panel with my dad, where we just listened to the entire original cast, except for I think it was it was either the mother or the father just talk about the experience of the making of A Nightmare on Elm Street. So like I was a super fan of this.
0: Yeah, that's so this. exciting. Um, I would, you know, I I have to be really hard pressed as in like maybe the life of a loved one is at stake for me to be able to effectively list favorites of anything. That's just a failing of mine. So I could, I don't think I could ever say this is my favorite horror film of all time because that makes me feel real anxious but i can definitely say that it's probably my favorite horror comedy i ca- i can say that and still feel like i don't have to limit myself to an answer that no one really cares if i'm locked into
1: for for me it's a little easier for me to say favorite because i'm saying like favorite in the sense of like i have a whole story attached to it so it's a little yeah. easier it's pe- if cuz people are like oh they they probably don't necessarily mean like that favorite doesn't necessarily mean best or like this is the best movie of all time it just means, like, this is, like, the horror movie that that started it all.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, you would think that maybe it's because, like, as a horror scholar, I can't claim a favorite, but, like, I just can't do that about anything. Um, it just it makes me really anxious. But I can say that one of the things that that will make me love this film, perhaps more than many a film, uh, is the fact that the production began on the day that I was born, right? June 11, 1984. And, you know that, uh, speaks to a connection that was created by the cosmos. Uh, even if the first time I saw it did not have nearly as adorable of a story as you have. Uh, so I think what we should do is, is talk about what we appreciate about this film, what, what scholars have kind of used this film to explore. Um, and, and where we think um, this film fits within sort of our larger discussion of, of horror, comedy, uh, and things like that. So what's interesting to me about this film is that um, there is so much scholarship on on this film in particular, but also on the franchise. And it surprises me not, not because um, it's not a film worthy of such criticism or scholarship, but more because... As we saw with our discussion of, of *Evil Dead*, even some of the big franchises just don't have a lot of, of scholarship, right? Because there's just that's just not really where our field has gone. Most people are looking at more like themes as opposed to sort of in-depth analyses of, of one specific film. But what's fascinating about looking at the scholarship on, on *Nightmare* is that it is really wide-ranging, and and that to me speaks to a good text, right, when you can have multiple sort of ways of examining that. And I will say straight up front, I am pretty sure I do not agree with all of the scholarship that is out there. Um, And the one I'm thinking of particularly uh, is, shout out to David Kingsley, who wrote an article about where he made this argument about how Elm Street can be read as this gothic text. That I 100% agree about with. Yeah, I was like, that's um, not. Yeah, that's not like a super hot take. Yeah, yeah. Bernice Murphy, uh, who is a, an amazing horror scholar, talks about um, the suburban nightmare in American, right? In America's suburban Gothic narrative. So yes, this is a keen example of this. Where I am a little less sure that I can agree with Kingsley, though, is that he he uses some of the tropes of the Gothic narrative, particularly that of like the doppelganger to talk about how the film can be read um, as this incest narrative uh, in which Kruger becomes a doppelganger figure for the father figure. And what I like about Kingsley's argument is that he he definitely supports his his claims. Right. He shows clear examples of, for example, um, you know, the scene where we have um, Kruger like defeating the mother in in the bed. right? And we have a lot of moments where, you know, like um, the the paternal neglect is is immediately followed by the unacceptable degree
1: of interest from Freddie in terms of Nancy. And I mean, also, Freddie and the father never share the screen together. Exactly. it's, It's a compelling argument, but just sometimes you're like, did you... Did you have to include so much Freudian analysis? Did you?
0: Yeah, I think that's what it is, right? Is you're absolutely correct. It's a very compelling argument. And it's one that I, I'm like, you know what? That's interesting. I'm almost willing to go there, except I really don't want to because I don't want to go Freudian. And I'm really okay with, with not having one of my favorite horror films be about incest, right? Like I'm just, as I've said before on the series, um, I'm just not, I don't need incest. Like I don't need that as part of my horror
1: experience. Wow. Coming so, out strong. Yeah. Just coming out. With, against incest.
0: Yes, against <laughs> incest horror. I just I can do without it for the rest of my life and it will still be much too soon. Um so, you know, we have cases like that and then we also have people uh like Jonathan Markovitz who is uh who argues and explores how the series and more specifically just sort of or broadly, um depicts this issue of female paranoia and and explores whether or not this is a, a reasonable thing to to employ as a survival skill, or if it's more of a like pathological um or problematic um and misplaced paranoia, right? And so female paranoia is that idea that you know as as a woman you're just a little bit more aware because you've been told to be more aware. Um about looking behind you, um, and ch- making sure you know women are told very explicitly all the things they have to do to make sure that they don't get attacked. Uh, in a way that I don't remember,
1: um, like in elementary school, the male students being told. I believe if we want to get Freudian, Freud called it hysteria.
0: Uh, yes, <laughs> and and right there, right. Thank you for that sound of disgust because there inherently is the problem. Um, and so what Markovitz does uh, is he kind of goes through and shows the way that that Nancy's um, paranoia um, becomes a survival skill, right? It's because she's saying, "Hey, something's not right," when everyone's else like, "Yeah, it is. It's okay." That that does lead to her survival. But he ends by by saying that the problem is is that um, a lot of films, nightmare included, because of the way they conclude and because of. Um, with that little, like twist ending at the end, right? It's a little hard to, to say whether or not the film is more feminist or more misogynist. And, and the result is, is that we see that in horror, um, sort of acknowledging the, the power of, of women and employing their paranoia as a survival skill uh, comes in moments, not, not as a sort of generic trope that we can accept yet. And I think that's a, a great argument to make because it speaks to the power of nightmare and and this is a weird power to have but nightmare manages to be a sometimes contradictory text and i think that actually is one of its greatest strengths yeah is that it has so many layers and yes all the layers don't quite fit together but it allows for so many interpretations and understandings of the film
1: this film definitely steers closer to 1981's evil dead than it does like a more typical slasher like halloween uh or friday the 13th it's far more in line with like we said we concluded about like evil dead that it's neither affirmative horror nor disaffirmative horror because it affirms nothing and disaffirms nothing it's just chaos whereas like friday the 13th and halloween are both clearly affirmative texts there's like ways to survive in that universe if you just like are if you were just a good person by like what our pure like puritanical society deems as like good moral values you can survive those movies whereas nightmare on elm street and this is introducing our a a larger topic of conversation that we will keep coming back to throughout this episode is it, it, it is not an affirmative text it is i think quite clearly a disaffirmative text that's different than a lot of comedy, particular horror comedies that we talked about on the podcast. Yeah,
0: so there's several things that you talked about that were like golden moments. And the first is is that I love your comparison to Evil Dead um, because in our discussion of the, the remake of Evil Dead, we talked about one of the, the problems of that remake was that it had tried to like um, sand off all the rough edges that, that make... The original film so delightful right something mm-hmm. that you can like hold on to and and i think you're right that that's a similar thing with nightmare is that nightmare has all of these rough edges um and and it's that that actually makes it delightful so I'm, I'm so glad you made that comparison but you're right um okay so affirmative versus disaffirmative as as we've talked about in, in other episodes but if this is your first uh listen uh really comes from um concepts developed by Linda Holland Toland. And she says that in affirmative horror, um, it's sort of this cathartic experience where we are temporarily um, allowed to, to let off steam by encountering this monster creature outside force. But at the end of the day, when we vanquish that, we're like, oh good. Um, The, the evil threat, which was external has been, has been destroyed. So now we can return back to the goodness that is society. Whereas disaffirmative horror is saying that, that, Hey, when you lift up that sheet and you look at the corpse underneath, it's going to have our face, uh, because we are the problem. We are the monster. We can't, um, ignore that, that what has created the horror or the ideologies and then the policies built on those ideologies, um, that the shape who we are. And, and you're right, that, that comedy is by itself almost exclusively, um, going to be affirmative Why do you think that is?
1: Well, I mean, most comedy is meant to be like trifling entertainment. And so, I mean, if you are to be entertained, you probably don't want to have all of your values that you hold dear constantly questioned. So you might have them challenged a little bit and you might have to slightly change your view. But why would a comedy, if the whole purpose is to like just entertain and just like basically, I mean, make you laugh? Why would it try to tell you at the very end that, like, oh, and all of those things that we pointed out uh, and, like, you lacked at, those are all horribly bad. Like, you're, if you are even remotely like that, you're part of the problem. No, that's not like, that's probably not going to sell a lot of tickets if you're, like, a, making it a just a standard comedy.
0: No, it's not. And, and I think that even. If we go back to even beyond, like, just issues of, of um, like, entertainment and selling, um, you know, that sort of side of, of the business, um, a happy ending we have been taught back to mythology, right? Not just, like, fairy tales, but mythology is you doing the things that everyone else is doing, the normative behaviors, and
1: being rewarded for them. I mean, right? yeah, you get- most comedies a morality tales. If you just like I mean that's not what they call themselves obviously right. and sometimes the subject matters featured in comedies are obviously not always the most moral but if you boil it down like the standard fare of comedies like generally is like you start from a place where your things are, are good things become not so good in the middle due to like either moral failure or just like situational failures etc etc you have to learn a lesson and then by the end, everything works out. And that's that's a morality tale. Right. And on the surface, a
0: good chunk of Nightmare can be read that way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because the the teens who die in the, the film are still the teens that, quote, deserve to die. Um, they're the ones that are being promiscuous. Um, they're the ones that are playing with drugs and alcohol. And even um Nancy's boyfriend played by, of course, Johnny Depp
1: in he... his feature film debut.
0: Excellent. Right, which, you know, what more could you ask for from a film um than seeing Johnny Depp for the first time. Uh, he he has failed her, right? Like he made a commitment to her, um and he broke his promise. And so also so he has to pay, right? And um Nancy's mom who Character drives me batty. Um, you know, she has to be punished because she's drinking like a fish, um, and and so and she
1: got a divorce.
0: And she got a divorce. Heaven forbid. Um, and you know, so she's not being a good mother. She's not being a good wife. Of course, she's going to have to burn to a fiery death in her bed. Um, so on the surface, there's a lot of this film that seems to be supporting this idea that um, you know. This being a good member in society is, is something that you should strive for and if you are not doing it you're going to be punished because society as we have it constructed is good right Um but obviously this film does not entirely
1: do that no I mean I don't think it can because it, it though there's a lot of like questionable morals like it, it raises a lot of really uncomfortable things that because I mean The whole crutch of the film, you realize, is, like, the reason this Freddy Krueger character exists is because a group of parents decided to get together to enact civilian justice in their minds and just, like, burn this guy alive. Uh, Which is, I mean, mean, some people might be like, that's justified, and I don't know if I necessarily disagree, but it's certainly outside the realms of, like, standard morals. Uh, I mean... You did murder someone, like, even yeah. if they are a monster. Like, that is still murder. You don't get to, like, wash your hands of that easily, which is what the film tells you and is showing you over and over again. A- and so, I mean, I think it's only natural that... Cause- yeah, so it's, it's interesting, right? Because you just said like pointed to what seems like
0: a contradiction right which is that the film at its heart has this idea of a vigilante justice um and we see the parents being punished for this vigilante justice right um the mom gets punished by again the fiery death um but all the other parents are being punished by having their kid killed but at the same time um the film doesn't i don't think entirely condemn it because we watch nancy our final girl trying to also kill Um, Kruger and we have been taught in in slasher films right that there is a individual that who has the like right from heaven to to destroy the evil right and that's our final girl our slayer you know whomever that might be
1: yeah I think it's interesting for a slasher film to make you question murder and death so much because I think a lot of times the whole point of these slasher films is like Oh my god, they're so grotesque and over the top, so we don't even really think about like the loss of human life. But this film I mean, and like I think that's important to remember, uh but this film like really acutely reminds you that it is the taking of human life. Just about every single time it does it too. It's like it really reminds you, even though it is in presented in an outrageous over the top manner. Yes. Yeah, you can't,
0: (laughs) you can't think about the dust and not think about the sheer amount of, you know, like
1: fake blood that's, that's used. Um,
0: and you actually, you have a a fact about that, right?
1: I do. I, so do you want to, do you want to take a guess at how many gallons of fake blood were used for special effects during, effects during the production?
0: Yes. And I'm going to be like way off. I know probably overguess, but I'm going to guess 150 gallons
1: You thought you were going to overguess. Oh, yay. Did I uh, underguess? I'm so excited. way under. It's actually 500 (gasps) gallons of fake blood were used for special effects during the production. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fake blood.
0: So for those of you that, you know, are having (laughs) difficulties imagining how much 500 gallons is, I googled, um, like, how big is a 500-gallon aquarium? And so that would be an 8-foot-long by 4-feet-tall aquarium. Right. I mean, so we're talking over that you could completely submerge a human um, in that much blood and you still uh, would have a probably like a lot of like, it be very space. roomy. Yeah, it would be extremely roomy. Um, yeah. So so like <laughs> that's insane. Uh, so five hundred. Uh, gallons of, of fake blood is used. So so again, we go to what I think makes uh, Nightmare so fascinating and that is it is a contradiction. So on the one hand, it has these, like you said, over-the-top ridiculous deaths. I mean, we have the scene where blood is, looks like it's, you know, just gushing out of the bed. But on the other hand, you're right. That compared to, um, especially compared to, I think it's, it's two sort of compatriots, Halloween and, and Friday the 13th, there's an uncomfortableness in the deaths of nightmare because um because it feels like we should be able to stop it right like um nancy doesn't make it in time to to save rod but like we have to watch really uncomfortably the scene where he's gonna be hung um we know that johnny depp's character whose name i can never remember um is yeah i mean it's it's johnny Depp like uh, (laughs) um we we know that like he's he's going to die because he's fallen asleep, but, like, we're constantly... It's hard to not, like, say, hey, 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 come on, come on, come on. Um, And same with uh, our, our first death, Tina, right? So I think you're correct that this film doesn't let us sit comfortably with death.
1: Yeah, and, I mean, that doesn't sound like it should be, like, super revolutionary because... No. I mean, what, like, isn't that... Aren't you supposed to always feel bad when people die? But, I mean, but... I mean, just in comparison, like... When you, I mean, it's inevitable that we talk about like Friday the 13th and Halloween because they all came out around the same time and are all kind of like viewed as the origins of the slasher, even if that's not necessarily true. If you want more information on that, I would recommend going back and listening to our episode over 1974's A Black Christmas, which I believe is the first true slasher. Um, But in like those other two films, Halloween and Friday the 13th, you don't really feel that bad when people die because the film is saying they kind of deserved it.
0: Yeah, they kind of
1: deserved it or even if they
0: didn't they're just a casualty but society will still survive, right? Mm-hmm. Like like you don't you don't feel their loss in any meaningful way. Right. And and while we link them together, I think it is important to remember that there is like um you know, there's a 10 year difference between Black Christmas and uh, Nightmare, but there's going to be like, what, six years and, and then about four years uh, for Halloween and, and Friday um, respectively. So that you're so that I think that drives further home your point that like um, by the time we get to Nightmare, um, there's kind of this established thing of, of like, well, you know, the teens have to die um, and that no one had questioned until we get to Nightmare.
1: Yeah. And which is why Nightmare is so much more interesting. And I think, I think, yeah, I think a more appropriate comparison is not what it typically gets compared to, which is Halloween, Friday the 13th. It's lumped in with like standard slasher fare. I think the far more appropriate comparison is something like Evil Dead goes to the opposite extremes in which you are not meant to care about the deaths. It doesn't matter because society doesn't matter. It doesn't society is not. It doesn't matter one way or another whether these people live or die because it doesn't nothing matters it's an it's a nihilistic existential nightmare and i think nightmare on elm street is far more akin to something like that than the conservative uh affirmative horror that is halloween and friday the 13th
0: so if we were sesame street episode i think that that our, our word of the day would need to be liminal um because to me that's the word that that links uh the evil dead franchise but especially the first film and and nightmare is that um so much of of nightmare is in the space between spaces so I, I always think about when i think about liminal i very explicitly think about like a doorway and how technically when you're in a doorway for a brief second you're not in either room right but you're also sort of simultaneously in both uh it's so like a Sort of Schrodinger's cat type thing, um, and and so yeah, I think you're right that that what makes Nightmare more akin to something like Evil Dead uh, is the fact that that this film cannot easily be categorized in in the same ways that the Evil Dead can't easily be categorized, um, and I think the one of the most impactful scenes for me that that really brings this home is. The way that, I mean, it's through the use of the dreamscape, right? So I think about the scene, the very disturbing scene, where Nancy's mother's like, come here, Nancy, I want to show you something. And then takes out of the, the furnace, right, the the knives for fingers, the you know, the his little hand glove thing. Um, and it's like, whoa, lady, that is an intense thing to be keeping in your house. But later, later in the film, there's this beautiful scene uh, where uh, Nancy's, Transitions as one does in a dream, from her basement to the the boiler room of of and and Freddie's lair, and in the process, what that scene is doing is it's it's showing us like where is, what is the place we should be afraid of right is it this fantastical otherworldly place, yes. Or is it um, suburbia and and the things that we keep buried uh, within society? Yes, right. Like and it's and the ability just in that one scene to articulate the fact that we should be afraid of both these monsters that are not created by society, right? Because the film never tries to imply that that Kruger is a pedophile because society made him one. Never once does it try to do that. So it sets him up as as a monster that has that is outside what is acceptable, but at the same time, the threat that Nancy and friends are facing is 100% created by a society in which a group of, of middle-class white people can get away with, with murdering someone, even if that someone is a pedophile. And to me, that is an amazing feat for a film that is not that long um, and not that complex in terms of like dialogue or things like that.
1: Yeah, I think you are absolutely right. And I I honestly think it's kind of just because of the nature of the film itself. It's like a it's one of those things that I think often gets overlooked about like the absurdist genre or camp or things like that is that like usually these genres are they're used to to show up to like peel back layers to be like we're going to oversimplify this and we're going to like present you with something that on the surface seems really what this one thing like it's this one way this is a because I mean on the surface it kind of I could see I genuinely could see how someone interprets this as being like an affirmative horror text that is very very akin to like Halloween and Friday the 13th in which the 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 bad people are punished and the good people I mean Nancy mostly successful
0: yeah, I think the twist ending makes it a little hard, but not that hard, right? Like I think I think you're right. That that the fact that the monster is a creeper, right, who's doing all the things that society says are bad and therefore he is monster, right? That's a very compelling case.
1: Yeah, and so I think a lot of a lot of the discussion on this film kind of just focus kind of gets lost in like I mean it is very otherworldly and abstract and like campy. I mean, and, and all of those things are true. And and I think that often narrows the discussion into using the overly simplistic terms and ways and things that the film presents, and that is how it the film is discussed in those overly simplistic manner. But I just don't like you're like you were saying, I just don't think that it That does the film itself justice.
0: So if we take, for example, the character of Nancy's father, played by uh, John Saxon, who, you know, plays a father like figure in a lot of horror like Black Christmas. uh, This is just that story arc alone perfectly illustrates your point. So on the one hand, we can read it as this being a tale that the reason that Nancy has to be punished um, or the reason that Nancy is punished um, is because. Her family has let um, the properly working form of patriarchy fail, right? Like it is her parents' fault because if her mom had just been a better mo- mother wife, and if her dad had just been a better father husband, um, then then patriarchy, which would work otherwise, um, it, you know, <laughs> right, uh, would work, and she would and she would survive. And we see that a lot through this narrative of of. Parental, particularly fatherly neglect. However, I think that that the film also allows us to read it as as making this argument that maybe the the system that supports this idea of patriarchy where we are dependent upon one member for a family to function, where our survival is built upon one person, um being able to to do it all, be it all, and and be you know, um, both strong and emotional, and all these things, right? Maybe that's a system that is doomed to fail, and 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 the film explores that just as much, right? Because if patriarchy had, and and the patriarchal system had worked, no child should have been molested, in the first place, um, you know. And and so I just there's something really fascinating in the ways that this film, by, kind of Almost in its, and I and I mean this in the with like an in, in an endearing way, but almost through its sloppiness, right through the gaps that it purposefully leaves, um, in the narrative, we're able to to again kind of grab onto different things, and and the text allows for that again going back to what you said in a way that's very similar to uh, Evil Dead.
1: Yeah, because I think it's just rejecting. It's very disaffirmative in most systems that we have in place. It's clearly showing like that this slipped through the cracks. Like, law enforcement failed. And it fails consistently in this movie. They are never there on time. They never, never show up, even though the lieutenant is Nancy's father. So, like, I
0: know. In th- <laughs>
1: like, if there was ever going to be, like, a, a person for whom the system worked, shouldn't it be the daughter of the lieutenant? But no, that's just how bad the system is that you can't even protect your own your own child and multiple times that narrative
0: is carried through through the explicit message that one of the most dangerous places to be is behind bars right so not only with rod but also with nancy's mom who you know puts up the um bars on the windows right like we've been taught that that is a sign of of protection um or systemic protection and every time it is the cause of someone's death because they're not able to to they're trapped right they're not able to escape
1: yeah and i mean it kind of i mean doesn't the nightmare escape also serve as another prison it's because you cannot escape from that either it's i I mean again like there are just so many layers of uh, of society and this like these systems that are in place that nightmare is able to successfully uh, tackle through kind of like and i think the reason that it's able to be so disaffirmative and critique so many systems is because of the alienation that occurs fr- by like inc- oh no it's not like it's in a dream world uh oh no 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 freddy krueger is just like this magic monster Ooh-wee. Don't think about it too hard, guys. Yeah. But while you're not thinking about it, we're also going to critique everything. Yeah.
0: And and the fact that it does all of that f- through horror comedy, I think, is, is really interesting. Because I, I think that, that the difference is, is that a lot of horror comedy um, is comedy in which horrific elements are used to make us laugh. Whereas I would say that in, and I'm, let's see if I can say this right, that uh, Nightmare is a horror film that uses comedic elements to terrify us, right? Um, because even though we're laughing at, it, especially Robert England's um, performance as Freddy Krueger, which let's face it, is a huge reason uh, that the, the film works. Um, you know, it's it's not, we're not laughing in the same way as we do in films in a lot of films, right? Like the the comedy, it's not the horror that is momentarily inserted into the comedy, it's the comedy that's momentarily inserted into the horror. And that that's a game changer in terms of horror comedy texts. The the thing that makes me keep coming back to Nightmare on top of um, the, the complexity that, that this film is and allows for, um, is definitely Robert England. Uh, but it's also the fact that, and, and we see this with, with Evil Dead as well, that, that beyond content, there are elements of form that are just so creative and so thoughtful that, that enhance, um, the storyline and the narrative. And we've, we've talked about a couple of them, but the other one that I don't think we can ignore, um, is, is the bathroom scene, right? Uh, which gets real phallic, um when you know the the gloved knives are like right between nancy's legs but that scene you know when when she gets pulled down into the to the big thing of of you know like what's like a lake of water i mean that's just so expertly done in the film
1: although not everybody agrees with you on that because particularly when the film itself came out like a lot of those those elements like uh, Kim Newman from the British Film Institute said that the kissing, telephone, and bottomless bathtub are disorienting. In a Cronenberg spirit, they get in the way of the relentless pursuing monster aspect that Carpenter manages so well. So not everyone agrees that, the, that some of those more disorienting, kind of ethereal, uh, liminal elements that we think are so good are as effective. But I would, I would probably say that's because I think that they're still trying to evaluate this film from the lens of a straightforward slasher. Which, as we yeah. have said many, many times already in this episode, it is not.
0: The There are a couple of things, though, that I, I think are my less favorite aspects of this film. And, and I will say that I'm... That compared to... Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie. Um, yeah, I'm not as big of a fan of Heather Link performance of Nancy. I I don't know if I think she's uh, the the best actress, um, and to a degree that I think is occasionally a little laughable. But I also think that they you know I mean, have you seen
1: <sighs> Have you seen her mother though? So like,
0: well, so she's a that's of thing. Her mom,
1: I feel like she's. <laughs>
0: Oh gosh, that some of those scenes with Nancy's mom and drinking are are cringe worthy in, in ways that are not entirely intended. Um yeah, so you're right. But but with that said, first off, who am I to judge the the acting of someone else? Um but second, she may not be perhaps always um the most emotive actress, but she also creates a very memorable final girl. Um, you know, Nancy you remember Nancy, um, and you remember her, and and she's significant enough that she's come back time and again in the
1: the larger I franchise. I think it's, a diff- it's just it's a different style of acting than people are normally accustomed to in in like film acting. It's far more akin to what I think you would see on like the stage. I think she's far more doing presentational style of acting that's more accustomed to something you might see like on the stage in which the fourth wall doesn't exist. It's just sometimes you're like that's a little too much you really are feeling you really are just like doing a representation of that emotion rather than the more like representational style of acting in which the fourth wall is up and you're really trying to like be in the moment you're ignoring the fact that an audience will watch this at some point uh yeah she's not doing that which is i think fine because i don't think that I don't think representational style of acting really would have fit the tone of this, but it's just, it is absolutely different.
0: And if we could make another comparison to Evil Dead, um, there's a a mania present in both uh, Ash and in Nancy that I think is actually rather accurate um, for the trauma that they are experiencing. And, And when they're not in those manic moments. Um, especially for Nancy, who's sleep-deprived, right? Like, she's she's robotic. So, yeah, so some of it, I think, I mean, maybe maybe it really means that she's the best actress I've ever seen, um, and that's just why I, I can't, you know, I'm like, oh, is she even acting? But, but yeah, I, I think you've convinced me that uh, even that is a detail that, that has its charm and,
1: and certainly has a place within uh, the film itself. I know presentational versus representational I framed from acting standpoints, because those are, like, two generally accepted... The styles of acting that are used. But I think this most of this movie falls under this presentational style. That is a, a note that you could use for everything because it is a presentation. They're showing, they're like, all right, audience, we know you're here. We know you're going to react. Look at this presentation. It's not real life. It's a, it is a presentation of a real-like environment, but... We're gonna really experiment and see what we can do in this insane presentational world that we've created.
0: What you just talked about, this like willingness to to go there and see what happens. I I think that when I look through the horror films that have resonated with me the most, that is a defining feature. That I, I think that it is not possible to have something be effective horror if you're going to play it safe and and not just in terms of of like the formulas that we get presented with or the tropes or things like that, but also in terms of stylistic elements and and the incorporation of soundscapes and things like that. And so, yeah, I I think you're absolutely correct that Nightmare on Elm Street. remains a film that's worth talking about because it made itself be a film worth talking about it took risks that didn't always maybe pay off for everyone but that you certainly are going to be haunted by um and that that's the point of of good horror i think uh, above and beyond issues of affirmative or disaffirmative is that it should linger in your head um and you can never you can never not be affected by it uh, in a way that that will stick with you forever we hope that you enjoyed uh, our discussion of nightmare on elm street because bum 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 uh we're gonna work our way through uh, much like we did with uh, the evil dead although much longer because there's so many more of them uh the nightmare on elm street franchise and so we'll kind of introduce them um periodically in through our rotation of other films uh and texts so
1: and there are how many if depending on which ones you include because some people are some people don't include the remake and some so i mean there's about 10 Ten, it's either people are. It's either nine. You either think there's nine or there are ten.
0: Okay, and we'll go through all of them because I think that it will be cathartic to casually and systematically destroy the the remake. Um, and and there's a couple good things, but but mainly yeah. So so this will be uh, the journey you will be going on
1: with us for a while now. However, our next episode is actually going to be on. Uh, it's a tale of two shinings. We're going to be talking about the 1977 original novel by Stephen King and then the 1980 film by Stanley Kubrick. And every so often I'll mention the
0: delightfully horrible or horribly delightful made-for-TV miniseries.
1: That one. That one's by King.
0: Yes, by Stephen King and uh, Mick Garris, who is a longtime collaborator. So, But I still think it deserves to be thrown in there. But! The Story of Two Shinies is a much better title. So we hope that you will join us for that episode. And in the meantime,
1: be sure to subscribe to our podcast and also follow all of our social medias, which are linked in the description. And be sure to, if you could, just like give us a like wherever you get your podcast from and write us for a review. That really helps. And share us with your friends. Have a great day. Thanks for listening.